the Double Lit Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Welcome back, everybody. And we're going to jump right back into some more talking about the Alan McNamara case. But first, Glenn, I think you have a little quiz for us. Right. I've got another little geo where in the world, W-H-O-R-L-D, <laughs> the off your, your little suggestion from last time. All right, yeah. Eric, three little factoids about this particular country. The first is that the raincoat was actually invented there. The slicker, the, the what you think about in like the traditional raincoat. Egypt. It's got to be Egypt, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. But it is a little bit of a clue, of course, to sure. where we're getting a raincoat. The second one, and this was, I think, by far the most surprising fact I learned about the country. The unicorn is the national animal of this country. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And the and it's a real place. And the third little <laughs> factoid about the country is that there was a wall that basically is built at the border of the country that was built by the Romans in the second century. And it was suggested that it was basically to keep the Romans and give them a border. But technically, it was to keep the people of this country out of the Roman lands. That's how it's been viewed. Huh. You know, what country well, I'm talking about. I Obviously, you're thinking somewhere Europe-ish, and the first two I was bouncing around Scandinavian areas, but the third one I think you're talking about Hadrian's Wall, so Scotland. I am talking about Hadrian's Wall. Well done, sir. Very good, all Scotland. Right. Yes. If people don't realize, yes, the Romans invaded all over Europe into England, all the way up to Scotland. They reached Scotland and said, oh, "Enough of this nonsense," and they put up a wall and supposedly to keep the wild Scottish Picts, P-I-C-T-S, out of, out of England at that time, which had been taken over by the Romans. Yeah, I, I believe the, that Hadrian's Wall being the inspiration for the wall in Game of Thrones. Yes. Yeah. And I'll just throw this in there. So if, if listeners don't realize, we actually recorded earlier in the day. We stopped right up a trial that we're going to get into here. I had to leave. I went to a concert. So my energy is probably a little different. My voice is probably louder. I might be slightly intoxicated. <laughs> and so it feels a little bit different. That's where it's just later in the day. And now it's after midnight here. And I've been yelling and whooping at a concert. I went to a, a tribute band show tonight here in Minneapolis and saw a band that does a tribute to ELO. And if listeners are probably young enough that they don't know ELO, oh, just imagine taking a blender and throwing in classic rock, a little bit of Queen, mm, disco, and a touch of the Bee Gees. And I'd say, oh, and some orchestral music, and you've got ELO. That's fair. But this is, so we're talking about electric light orchestra. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, they, right. Should, yes, should have mentioned that. But the crazy thing is, I guess every show that they do, I've never seen this band before. I've been trying to see them forever. So They're what's here, the band called? Uh, E-L-N-O. <laughs> E-L-N-O. E-L-N-O. They're located here, but they actually have some national recognition. They travel all over. But whenever they come back here, they'll start a new set of shows. And then they always have an intermission. And after the intermission, they'll come back and do about 45 minutes to an hour of other songs, bands as ELO. So they have done Tom Petty before, Journey. I'm trying to think of, I, I haven't seen them. They were just talking about them. But tonight they did In Excess. So they did like almost an hour of In Excess songs. Had a great sax player come up. And the, oh man, the sax player is just incredible. So it was really fun. 
a night of ELO and NXS. So I got all my abbreviations in one night. NXS obviously is an abbreviation for NXS. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that sounds awesome. I was trying to just imagine in my head what that would sound like, and I couldn't figure it out. Maybe uh, hopefully there's some video floating around online here soon that I can I can go <laughs> and try to put a sound to to what you're describing there. All right. All right. So a couple of announcements here before we get back into things. So first off, a few months ago, we talked about some fingerprint-related books that Casey Wertheim was selling. I wanted to let people know, pass that information on again. If you want some old fingerprint books that are probably really hard to find, go to ccwfingerprintbooks.com. And you can go through a catalog of what he has there for sale and find something that you might might want to find. And also there's a new study that is being worked on by Alexander Antionos. And I'm probably butchering that. I apologize for the pronunciation, but he is working at the University of Lausanne, I believe on a PhD thesis, and he's doing some research into third level detail. So if you'd like to participate in that research project and answer survey questions, about 15 minutes or so, reach out to him, Alexander, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-E dot Antionoz, A-N-T-H-O-N-I-O-Z at U-N-I-L dot C-H. All right, Glenn, do you have some classes coming up? I do. As I mentioned, too, there's a class coming up in Canada, which don't often teach in Canada, and it's going to be in Calgary. And that's going to be March 6th to the 9th, teaching with John Black. That'll be on exclusions and sufficiency. I hope to see some of our Canadian listeners there. And in April 17th through 2021, 20, teaching in Houston. That's an ACE V course. And then finally, May 1 through the 3rd, teaching in Seattle, Washington with Brendan, Max, and Carrie Hall. That'll be the Practical Answers for Challenging Questions testimony course. And I'll also be teaching webinars at the end of the year in November, December, if you're interested in those. And those courses are live. You can find those courses at ronsmithandassociates.com. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com to register for those. And I'll also be teaching webinars through Alice White's website, Evolve Forensics. These webinars are in November and December of this year. So go to Alice's website, evolveforensics.com, sign up and register for webinars. All right, Glenn, let's now jump back into it. Great. All right. So last, when we left our listeners, we had gone through all the different experts that had gotten involved and some of the weird little twists and turns leading up to the actual trial that started in June of 2000, June 20th of 2000. Sorry. The actual trial, which started June 20th of 2001. And first day, the, basically the prosecution had put on their case. And then the second day were the defense experts, which included Pat Wertheim, and Alan Bale, we talked about their reports and their conclusions last time, namely that the their main point is lift number two, which was said to come from a jewelry box, in their opinion, could not have come from this flat wooden jewelry box. Uh, their opinion was it appeared to have come from more of a curved, specifically tapered surface, perhaps a vase in the house. And the reason for that was the scalloping on the edges, 
There was no background noise detected. They talk about wood grain and other kinds of background noise. And one of the things we actually didn't talk about, and I don't know how relevant it is, and I'm not even sure how much I personally agree with it. It's an interesting point, but I don't know if it's very convincing to me, is the overall shape of the latent print. Their opinion mm. was that this, this latent print appeared too flat and broad to have been from a, well, effectively a flat surface because it was missing the tip area. It seemed too broad. Basically, the shape of it did not, in their opinion, seem consistent with a flat surface, but rather a round surface. And I, look, I guess part of my opinion is it's, it's really quite minor in the scheme of their reasoning. The scalloping, like we agreed last time, seems to be the big thing. It seemed to be one more little notch in their argument. I don't know that I would make a strong opinion based on the shape of a latent, necessarily the surface that it would have come from. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, yeah, it looks, yeah, it's fairly wide compared to just other latent prints, but too wide to be on a flat surface. I don't think I could get behind that one. And you know, maybe that's just because I haven't studied the actual physical widths of latent prints on different surface types and seen the distribution of widths you get on curved versus flat surfaces, and then see where this width lies on that spectrum. But I doubt that anybody else has done that either. I'd be suspect of, of using that as the basis for a conclusion. Yeah, Alan makes the point in one of his reports that both Pat and he have studied regiology and therefore they have specialized knowledge on this topic. And the big thing is that the tip area seems missing from this, that normally if you're grabbing a flat surface, applying any kind of pressure, you're going to get more area above the tip. Whereas a curved surface doesn't really allow for the thumb to make as much contact and so in their opinion, because you're missing larger surface area above the core area up into the extreme tip, and then it's broader in its shape, this, in their opinion, was more consistent with a rounded surface, curved surface, as opposed to a flat one. It's an interesting point, but I think you said exactly my opinion. I wouldn't dispute it or agree with it, because I don't know that I have experience or knowledge either way. I don't know that I've studied it, and I certainly haven't seen it published anywhere. That's my number one thing, is that I can't think of any study that clearly has shown, look at the surface area or the area of contact in this kind of condition versus that condition. That study, in my head, is not coming to the forefront if it's there. And that honestly sounds a bit like the explanations that people posted back in 2010 about the, the CTS print. Oh, yeah. my God. I can't believe you said it, Eric, because that was exactly my thought. And <laughs> I'm not, not trying to call Pat out here or anything. I just I don't know if I agree or disagree. I'm just not convinced by that one statement. Pat was one of the number one people who looked at that latent print and said, this is not from the surface you said it was from. It's got to be from this surface because of the shape. When I read that, I thought this is just like the 2010 CTS test, where Pat was very vocal about the shape of the latent and the surface from which it was said to have come from. That was a little different in that it very, very well may have been from a rounded surface and not from the flat surface it was purported to have come from in, uh, in that test. But that's a, that's a whole other thing. We've probably done an episode on that or talked to that in the past, but it's I just, I think I just have the same opinion on that and this, that it's just, 
not strong enough weight to really throw anything behind. But in light of the other things, I think are more. Exactly. I just have more weight in my head. But anyway. All right. So one day of the prosecution's experts, one day of defense experts, then they break for the weekend, come back on Monday, and then closing arguments. Basically, the jury gets the case over lunch. You know, they break for the afternoon. Jury comes back like an hour later after their lunchtime and with a unanimous conviction. And they have basically voted guilty. And he's guilty of two, two counts, burglary and theft, grand theft of the Land Rover. So two counts. And one of the things that I really want to talk to him a little bit is that he took the stand, which is an interesting choice. I'd like to know a little bit about that. And the overall defense that we're going to get into, and again, I really want to hear his point on this. And so their defense, specifically Alan's defense, was that somebody must have planted this. And there was a bit of a hint that basically this D.C. Hart who had arrested him and had made this comment, especially a bit vulgar. We mentioned in the last episode, basically, I know it was effing you and because you lived in this break met. I know it was you. It was you. And when Alan basically said, this is what he said. And I think we're going to find out that Alan really didn't want to bring that up on the stand, but his attorney asked those questions anyway. And that Alan was disappointed because he was basically saying that this officer said these mean accusations accusatory things to him and then the officer had basically disputed all of it and said no i never said any of that and he according to alan i think in the records seemed like he was disappointed and it felt like a just didn't go over very well so i want to unpack that a little bit with alan but that basically was their defense was someone must have planted this perhaps when he was living in this raiment area he had been burgled at some point his house had been burglarized and maybe someone snuck in, got his fingerprint from a surface like 10 years before this crime. And maybe he planted that print at the scene. Or possibly the crimes investigator, Terry Burchill, basically perjured himself and lied about this and that there is some kind of setup. In any event, the defense basically was, the police are trying to set me up. It's a plant. And I don't think that... Personally, reading it, and again, even having seen the evidence myself, not sure at that time with their information, that would have been a very plausible defense. But I don't know why they chose that, and I'd like to hear from them. We talked about last time about how the other identifications to Mrs. Shears, yes. one of the owners of the house, is what later it doesn't come up in the trial here. It comes up later on. In this whole sequence. And when we say later, literally a couple of weeks later. Right. Literally after he's convicted by the jury, it's almost like a week or two later, they go back to the office. Then they get the another set of exemplars from Mrs. Shears, then compare those other prints to, to her, end up matching her prints on both lifts. Presumably, if that kind of pokes holes in this planting kind Absolutely. of Absolutely. So assuming that evidence had come out prior to trial, it seems very likely that defense would have gone with a different theory of the, of how the prints got there. Yes. And so again, let's theorize that they'd gone with the kind of legitimate placement from some point in time, handling a vase or wherever this other lift came from. 
that Lift 2 came from. It's not the jewelry box. It came, had to come from something else. And that something else had been touched by Alan McNamara at some point in the past in the course of his business. A couple of presumptions there, but do you think that goes over with the jury? I think that would have been a more sound defense. I really would have focused on that. But understandably, the very basis of their appeal is, had we known that there were other prints on this matching Mrs. Shears, we never would have gone with that defense. So their entire appellate argument is this information was critical to the defense that we chose at trial. Right. Now that we know this, our defense effectively is it must have legitimately come from another surface. However, as we're going to get to here in a little bit, all of that is also disputed by other quote unquote, what I'm going to call facts in the case. But that's where we need to go next. Okay. All right, let's okay. go. All right. He is convicted by the jury on 625 and then in on 717 so just about three to four weeks later he is now sentenced by the judge to two and a half years for a burglary which is another thing i want to talk to alan about to me that seems excessively long for effectively what equates to a first-time burglar with no criminal history Right. That's, that seems really, frankly, draconian compared to what I'm used to in the States where you have to be effect, you've got to be caught multiple times and sentenced multiple times before you do any real time in jail on burglaries and thefts here. We've got lots of crime, but and we seem to do a good job of keeping people in jail past maybe when they should. That really seemed excessive. So I want to get to that a little bit with Alan. But anyway, in, in the time that he is sentenced to the and the time that he's convicted, those three to four weeks, that's when Kershaw, who's the basically the head of the this crime scene unit at GMP, he gets this elimination set from Mrs. Shears. He then does the comparisons and identifies her on both lips. And that's the critical information. He then discloses those issues and that kinda changes everything. He is still sentenced. And then in November of 2001, he starts the appellate process, now that they have this new information especially. In November of 2001, he's now in jail, but other people are starting to get involved in the case. For example, the media gets involved. Shelley Joffrey, who is an investigative reporter there in the UK, she had done the investigative reporting on the Shirley McKee case. So here's another fingerprint case in England that kind of gets her excited and interested. She already has all this stuff on the McKee case and Pat Wertheim and all that. So here's Pat Wertheim again. Here's another fingerprint, which she believes to be an obvious error. And she gets involved and generates some media attention to it. Yeah, so the show that eventually comes out after her involvement is called Panorama. And I think it's a, a long-running BBC docu-series that's done all sorts of stuff over the years. Yeah. And she's like their um, Geraldo. <laughs> not quite sure that's the best analogy. I know. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. That's funny. But so I went back, right? Because I was trying to see if I could find these episodes and watch the uh, watch these these docu-shows from basically 2001. 
And sadly, they do not seem to have been preserved online. Maybe someone's got a copy somewhere, but, but I couldn't find it at least posted online. But the BBC does have the web pages for, for these shows, which was a interesting trip back to memory lane of just what the internet looked like in 2001. <laughs> And there, there are links to the videos, but they require a real player and the real media links just were dead. They didn't work anymore. What? Um, Shocking. I bet if you go just... to Napster, you could probably download a, a version <laughs> of it. <laughs> Napster bad. But thankfully, though, there was a transcript on this website. So I got to read through the closed caption version of it. And uh, there were a bunch of internet comments, which again is also flashback. Cause like every post was like a paragraph or two of well-written content, which is uh -huh. just not what the internet looks like nowadays. And just, it didn't just... devolve instantly to it's either the Republicans or the Democrats fault. No matter what no, argument is just immediately. <laughs> okay. It was, there were good and bad kind of takes on it all, but still it was, there were no name calling. It was just. Anyway, I went through a whole rabbit hole of remembering what the internet was like 20 plus years ago. We'll get more to that later on, but I just wanted to mention that now. Oh, okay. All right. We'll look forward to those comments. All right. Yeah. So the media is getting involved, trying to put more attention on this. But interestingly, their first chance at an appeal is denied. But then later it's granted. And then there are more reports and more experts that get involved in this case. And they're, uh, Alan and his lawyers are trying to find a number of different ways to challenge this and show that this kind of thing in other cases where there's been some dispute about the source of a fingerprint, this is something that might come up from time to time. I guess a, I wouldn't say it's a common thing, but it's certainly not a completely foreign and unique thing to this case. So that's where they're going here. And then it, this is another part that I'm not clear about. It says that according to the timeline, in August of 2002, which would basically be just one year and one month since he was sentenced to prison, says he's released from prison. But I don't know if that's completely true. Maybe he was released to house arrest or something else or a work release. Because I, I seem to recall personally that he had spent over two years in prison. And I, so something about that I want to ask Alan about. But at least according to the timeline, says he spent over a year in actual prison. And that was part of the Shelley Joffrey panorama episode was just how difficult and hard it was on him and his family, his children, yeah. his wife, his business, et cetera. Yeah, no, I initially read that as basically just released for the day, maybe. But so you're right. The timeline, it's not entirely clear. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll ask Alan how that all worked and what happened with that. And then in 2003, there were additional statements, reports, and interviews, and the document examiner gets involved now who has said, yep, the ink looks like it was from a different pen, maybe even a different time or possibly author. Alan Bale writes more reports. Kershaw, the supervisor at GMP, writes some reports. And then there's this period where in 2004 where there's number of things going on. Not, I'm not real clear, but they're t trying to get statements from all the crime scene investigator who have lifted these lifts. But he's in the hospital. I think he's having surgery for his back. People are going to the Shears place and trying to get the all the vases and maybe other vases or try to figure out what other items are interviewing Shears and all these other things. And they take some statements from Mrs. Shears, which 
Now, my understanding is she did testify in the first or during the trial, but she'd also made some statements later too to try to give more explanation. Now that the defense's argument is basically this had to have come from an innocent touch that Alan must have come in contact with this in the course of his business, if not in his own store, then perhaps at a distributor or some other large distributor of home goods or something that somehow he came in contact and that's how it ended up, you know, her purchasing it. So they're taking statements from Mrs. Shears about when did you purchase these? And again, during the trial, she talked about her cleaning regimen, but they really zoomed in on what do you clean it with? And exactly how do you clean it? Please describe all of this. Which is, I guess, both relevant and not relevant. Because, like, I mean, in general, when you clean something, how close are you paying attention to what you're doing, right? It's, yeah, yeah, you're paying attention to what you're doing, but it's not for, like, storing this in long-term memory. Unless, you, maybe you do some things the same way every time. But depending on the vase, there could be, like, even on the inside, a or underneath the lip some area that doesn't get cleaned as well because it just doesn't collect dust when it's on if it's on that yeah that thing an overhanging and, kind of part of it yeah and i think that was part of this was to try to get more detail about this i believe because i think the defense at trial was it was planted i don't think there was as much focus on the cleaning aspects right but after, now that is the focus. And basically the only way, according to defense, that could get there is he must have touched this some point prior. So even though initially when she was asked, when and where did you buy these vases? Remember, we're not even sure which vase it was that the actual lift came from. Because during one of the interviews of Birchall, he's shown the vase or the suspected vase. And he goes, that's not the vase that I lifted it from. So he even says... That's not it. That's not the vase I lifted it from. So there is real confusion sometime later, some years later, when they are looking at all the possible vases of which there were four vases in the house and a lamp that kind of had a vase-like shape to it, a tapered shape. So it was basically five objects and possibly a pot upstairs that any one of these six objects maybe was the item was lifted from, but even then, maybe it wasn't one of those. They're now asking her where and when did you buy all these? Oh, and the jewelry box, of course, too. When and where was that? So she at first didn't remember, but when she comes in and makes a statement, she gives very specific answers. And basically, almost all the vases had been purchased about nine years before the burglary. One of them had been four or five years before that. Almost all of them had been in locally and then basically in that area in the town that she lived in. She had mentioned one of them in another area, but basically none of them had been in Allen's town, which was Bolton. That's where he was living in the town called Bolton, which is about 15, 16 miles west, about a 30-minute drive from this Rockdale area. And the jewelry box had been purchased somewhat recently to the burglary of previous Christmas, and the husband had purchased it for the wife, and they knew exactly where that had been purchased. And it was from a jeweler's store. So it was purchased at some jeweler's store in the same time. So they now seem to have at least some statement from the homeowner when these were purchased. And it was a significant amount of time. If it was one of the vases, and most of them were nine years, I'm talking about nine years before this, 
Now, I personally know of cases where latent prints have been on surfaces for five to 10 or even possibly longer years on a surface. And we had Simon Bunter, of course, in some in a previous episode come in talking about very similar kinds of cases of this where, yeah, they've encountered prints on surfaces years later, left there under innocent conditions, but at the scene of the burglary were lifted from it, identified the someone who ended up installing a gate or a window or had painted the wall or done construction on the place or something like that years before the crime. So even though it seems like, yeah, these vases might have been five to nine years before they were actually in her home, I still wouldn't rule it out based on anecdotal cases that we know already exist. See, one of the, the funny things for me is when I first heard about this case, and I'm not sure if I was told incorrectly or if I just imagined it, like when I pictured it in my head, I imagined it wrong. But w what I had always pictured was a vase that was more like, like a floor standing vase. It's about three, four feet tall. That in order to pick the thing up, you got like a put an arm inside of it. To, and that's where this print was just hanging out on the inside of this big ass face. But these aren't, that's not the, <laughs> the pictures of these vases are, um, you know what, maybe like a foot tall or so, if that. Yeah, like a flower vase. So a lot smaller than what I had always pictured in my head. And there's some flowery designs and then, or more plain designs. Some are more, are round, I don't know if you cross-sectionally round and others have a know, more of a hexagony kind of shape, like a ribs kind of looking thing. One of the things that I saw here, then another topic that came up is whether or not any of the decorations, mm -hmm. the painted elements on the vase have been transferred onto this, this lift card, not the one that necessarily the one that, that where Alan McNamara's print was identified, but the other one, Lift 1. That was said to come from a vase. The one that was actually exactly said to have come from a vase. There's, they call that a, was a hook or a claw shape? Yes. There's in, a, in this print? There's like a little pry, almost like a trident of three little white lines that come together. They were cl calling a claw shape. So Glenn, what do you think about that? Okay, what we call it a claw or a five or whatever. What do you? What are your thoughts about that? Is do you think that came from the surface? No, I really didn't. Much has been made about that. Oddly enough, above the five, there is this horizontal kind of darkish line that makes what you and I have referred to offline as a Y shape. And then if you follow that horizontal line to the middle, there's almost this weird. When I look at this, it's right in the middle of the lift, directly in the middle at the top of the lift. It looks like a Chinese character to me, and it looks like it's got like a kanji type of character. And even the way that some of the strokes on this seem to get thin and then thick if you're doing like a paintbrush of a Chinese character. So I and it's darker than parts of the lift. I think that's all tape folds. So if you look over at the McNamara 2.jpg, the kind of full color image of the of that lift in that area I, it looks like there's just like the reflection in tape folds that yes. make up that kind of kanji character no i, I you're 100 right it looks like a one of those creases you can actually see the raised area yeah but there are parts of it to me that some of that stuff seems more like that's where there might have been something in the background 
but there's no mm-hmm. way that the tape would have conformed to that unless it was raised in some way. So my point is you're 100% right. When I look at the lift, it looks like a raised area. When you look at the photo of the lift, you can see it is, in fact, a raised area. It's like a fold in the tape. But ultimately, was that just random fold or is there something there to cause? That's the part that seems odd to me. Got it. Got it. The claw thing never struck me as something in the background of the surface. And maybe that might change if I saw the original. We have this photograph of what the lift looks like, but it's very fuzzy. And maybe in that area, maybe it's more clear that's some background pattern, but I can't see that from the fuzzy image of lift number one. Yeah. For me, it's one of those things where it's maybe it could be something that was on the surface or even just some kind of smudge that was not part of the image pattern of the surface, but something, some contamination on the surface. Or not, right? It could just be, I don't know. It's, it doesn't seem very conclusive either way as to exactly what that is. Yeah. No, I agree. I never struck me as definitively, this is background pattern from the vase. But all the people who are making test lifts are trying to match that to either the jewelry box or possibly one of the vases. And no one's ever able to find that pattern on the vase or jewelry box. Interesting. Okay. All right. So then we get into what I think is also some of the most critical testimony and elements of this is not only the testimony that she gives, but her statements later, which basically this is the homeowner saying, look, here's how I clean my house. And everyone notes, even Shelly Joffrey, when she enters their house to do an interview of the homeowner's Shears, notes how clean the house is and well-kept. Mrs. Shears says, I cleaned usually about three times a week, and that cleaning regimen included dusting twice a week, like a duster, and furniture polish once a week. So three times a week, I'm going through, and I'm doing dusting some days, and then I put a little furniture polish, and then I clean everything up weekly. And the way that she says that, Plus, of course, when it was potentially purchased, maybe nine, somewhere between either nine to five years, if it comes from a vase, this basically, and there's a statement from multiple entities who have reviewed the case, both at the appellate level, and we'll talk about the this review committee. Basically, her testimony about her cleaning schedule means that if she cleans like this weekly, and, the, and there was even a statement that, that the homeowner thought that maybe the last time she had cleaned had been about a week before they'd gone on vacation. So right. effectively, the only way McNamara's print could be on that surface and Shear's print to also be on that surface was that from the last time that she had cleaned it, probably a week before, that Shears and McNamara had both touched it. Thus, McNamara had to have been the burglar because... There's no way he could have touched it years before innocently because the cleaning regimen would have destroyed the, any prints on the surface. It had to have come after that. This is what many of us were trained years ago when trying to say when a print could be left on a surface. We could always say or we, we, we were taught never say anything about the science behind it because you can't tell when a print's on a surface except for if you knew every day or once a week that a person had come through and cleaned the surface and you find a print on it. Then you can say at a minimum, it had to have been deposited after that. 
this testimony and this reasoning was exactly that reasoning in this case. Yeah. Like you mentioned earlier, we had a number of examples from a past episode where that was shown to just not be the case. Not uh, very commonly, it would be rare to have a print that survived for that long or that many cleanings, but it can happen. And if this happened to be a print that was either by the residue or some sort of environmental conditions that happened after it was left behind, been robust enough to not be wiped away through the normal cleaning process, then it doesn't really matter too much how many times it was cleaned because then it just would have just kept on surviving there. It is a rare circumstance for that to happen, but rare events happen. Now I want to bring something up. First, there's the common sense part of it, that if she cleaned it so thoroughly, why were there so many of her prints on both of these, on these objects? True. You find her prints twice on one, on one and three on the other. So we've got five of her prints on the surface. And over, and lots of other smudges on the surface as well. Exactly. Right. Lots of little smudges and fragments that were deemed unidentifiable and some real faint ridge detail as well. So that's one of the, it's the common sense part of me that goes, really, what are we talking about here on a cleaning regimen? That we just take a little feather duster and just wave it around and that's that? Or she's going in, picking it up, cleaning it, and then setting it back down with furniture polish and really rubbing it and shining it and doing that once a week. I, again, I'm just the common sense sniff test. It doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. And I think there, you can also look at just how many other lifts there were, just these two, compared to at least what we, the notes are lacking, but what it sounds like what was actually powdered throughout the house was more mm -hmm. without any lifts taken from those, from any of the other surfaces. So it may be a situation where, you know, in, in her mind, she's just kicking ass and cleaning everything. And that's the case for most objects throughout the house because there's no fingerprints found on any of those. Right. But on whatever this was, this is the thing that, that just that didn't really need as much cleaning or didn't get as much cleaning or, or she just cleaned it in a different way because it was a more delicate object, something along those lines, where then you would now find more prints from both her and someone else from a long time ago. Yeah, I, I have a desk in my office and I actually use furniture polish on it more regularly. But my bookshelf with all the books on, I don't take everything off the bookshelf weekly to go through and clean it. The dust back there is hidden. People aren't necessarily looking for Clean it a little differently than I would a high traffic area that does get a lot of prints and does get mussy, if you will, and needs a little bit of furniture polish to shine it up. So I think your point is mine here as well. There might be certain objects that get more attention during a cleaning regimen. Sure. Now I want to bring up something else that no one has discussed yet, but I think oh. in this conversation should be brought up. Okay. And I'm going to direct listeners to an article, or actually two articles. They were published in the JFI in 2012. They have nothing to do with this case. And then they were published by Israeli researchers, several of which I'm very familiar with, and Terry Kent is actually very familiar with them as well. It was published in 2012, Journal of Forensic Identification, 62, parentheses 1, meaning it was published in January, February of 2012. And it's a series of two articles. And the title of the article is Survivability of Latent Prints, Part 1, Adhesion of Latent Fingerprints to Smooth Surfaces by Yaron Cohen. 
and several other people, but including Mikhail Elad, who she's a friend of Terry Kent's and mine, and she's a well-known researcher in the Israeli group. So that's the first article. And part two, the second one, this is the one I want to draw listeners' attention to, the survivability of latent fingerprints part two, the effect of cleaning agents on the survivability of latent fingerprints. This article is one that I've shared with many defense attorneys over the years and blew my mind when I read it. The basic thrust of the article is they place a bunch of fingerprints on various surfaces and then use different kinds of cleaners afterwards and then determine whether or not the cleaner completely removes the fingerprint or is anything left behind. And they use a series of six different commercially available cleaners. And here's the crazy thing. Five out of six of these cleaners left prints behind. Only wow. one of them had actually removed all the fingerprints from the surface. Do you remember what, what brand the one is? Just not that I'm going to commit crimes or anything. It's just curious. Yeah, it's right in the article. Astonish kitchen cleaner for greasy surfaces. For greasy surf. Okay. And it also lists the active chemical ingredients and stuff in it, which includes ethanol, butoxyethoxyethanol, and some non-ionic surfactants. In fact, most of these have surfactants, but it's this butoxyethoxyl ethanol, apparently it is as good. But several of the other cleaners have it too, that same active ingredient. But something about this, again, the main point being, just because something has been cleaned does not necessarily mean that the prints have all been removed. We knew right. this anecdotally from certain cases, like you had talked about earlier, but it's nice that there's some research that shows this under controlled conditions. And it's one of the reasons in my own testimony, I stopped saying what I was taught years ago. Circumstantially, we might be able to offer when a print was left on a surface. If we know someone cleans a plexiglass window every day at 10 a.m., we find a print on it, then we know that print was deposited at some point after 10 a.m. I've stopped saying that. And it was really this article that really made me rethink those statements. What do we know about how good cleaners are at removing fingerprints? And then given what we know from Simon Bunter's episode about the various residues and some of the weird things that prints might be left on that have more robustness, I don't, again, I go back to our previous activity episodes. I don't know that we should be saying anything about that. I think the, the thing here is under some conditions, depending on the constituency of the residue and the conditions that a print is on a surface, that if left undisturbed, a fingerprint may stay on a surface in perpetuity. Yeah, it's just so unpredictable what conditions go into the leaving print behind, the material that's transferred, and then the environmental conditions afterwards. And it may hit the just the right set of circumstances, which is difficult to distinguish where that, that residue gets baked on there, and then it takes a grease remover to get it off. Maybe, <laughs> according Maybe. to the article. I just wanted to throw that in the mix because the statements of... Mrs. Shears about her cleaning regimen and when she would have purchased That is the number one thing that when the appellate court looked at the potential new defense and then later this commission that reviews potential convictions and decides whether or not to get involved and recommend an appellate or overturn a case, the CRC, both of these groups have come back to it wouldn't have mattered. Even if you had a different defense, at the end of the day, the testimony of Mrs. Shears is the most important thing here 
because it had to have been left in this window of basically a week from when she last cleaned. So therefore, he had to have been in the house. End of story. That's it. And I think that's the thing I would focus all my energy on is showing this may not be true. This ain't necessarily so. Right. Yeah. And that's in addition to the scalloping that we talked about before and mm -hmm. the poor documentation of the crime scene work, all that together can then start to paint this picture. Right. As you just pointed out, I'm going to feel bad getting excited about this when I talk to Alan tomorrow, but it's a fascinating case. If you take out the human element of pain and suffering that Alan has gone through, you have to have these two things, right? The longevity of a print being randomly touched at something and remaining on the surface. So you have to have yeah. that and possibly even surviving some cleaning at some point. And the mix-up of the lifts, these two things coming together. And then, of course, the poor documentation. These two things, though, coming together, it seems fantastical, but why not? Why couldn't that have happened? Why is that not possible? Given... Every burglary case I've ever worked in my life, Alan and his background and everything about this case makes no sense that he was a burglar for one night, just decided to randomly go to some house 15 miles away. Not even close to where he actually lived or worked. Not knowing this people or when he when they would have been out of town or knowing anything like that, just, I'm, you know what, I'm going to go burglarize this house and a Land Rover. Why not? It doesn't it's, it's fit not at a, all. Driving down the, the highway or even a main road to come across this house, it's tucked way back in the middle, in the deep reaches of a neighborhood at the end of a cul-de-sac. Exactly. Honestly, I, I, I can believe the other scenario. It's handled innocently in the course of some business manner and survives this and just happens to be a switch up with the lifts and that this didn't come from a jewelry box. Now, why don't we talk about our personal theories and thoughts? Because I just tipped my hand. That to me seems the most reasonable thing. But I am curious about when Alan could have come in contact with this, especially if it had been purchased five to nine years before. And there's a lot of talk about, even if this wasn't purchased in his store, which I actually do believe Mrs. Shear's statement on that. She's like, I've never been the Bolton and bought anything like a vase in a store in Bolton. That does seem like the kind of thing you'd remember. I would right. remember where I would buy a vase. I could probably tell you Maybe not the exact dates and years, but I could tell you that I've never been to St. Louis and bought a vase or, or any other weird city off the top of my head. I could probably tell you where. So right, right. that seems very believable to me that she never bought this in his store. Okay. So then there's the thought that maybe this had gone through some mass distributor and he's buying things and deciding what to bring to his store, his knickknacks and bric-a-bracs and other home goods and dollar goods and such. Right, he's going through this warehouse, he picks up a thing, looks at the flowers, sets it right. down, picks up another thing, yep. et cetera. Now, what I'm going to ask him, though, is has he ever been to this Rockdale shopping and could he have picked it up in a store that she attended to? Because those questions were actually never asked in this case. Why did it have to be something that was handled in the course of his business has he ever been there in her neighborhood or a store over there where they could have gone to the same store? He just picks it up, looks at it, and sets it back down. Sure. And, you know, yeah. on the shelf of a store. Makes sense. I had a case where that very same thing happened. There were these um, spree killers that we were tracking. They had gone to a Walmart. They had picked up some walkie-talkies. And when we eventually received the packaging to do the latent print processing, we found a bunch of prints on there. And when we ran some of them, we ended up finding out the source of them. It was just someone in the store who had touched it. It was not the people we were looking for. 
And it was just one of those things that they had picked it up. I think they had been interviewed and they were like, yeah, we were in there months ago. Happened to pick up that one, set mm. it back down, didn't buy it. And so innocently on a surface. So, yeah, that could happen where people pick up things in the store. So I, I definitely want to ask him that. Imagine if you had found your own prints on it. That'd be kind of weird at one point. I wonder if that's ever happened to anyone in their career. You know, not from being like the crime scene CSI person and not forgetting to put on clubs. But yeah. you, you touch something, time, weeks, months go by, and then somehow that thing you touched ends up as part of the crime and with a lift on it, and it's you. Yeah, but, yeah, you could see that at a bank or like a, like a gas station or something like that that you would frequent yeah. it. That would be really freaky. That actually really would, that would definitely be freaky. <laughs> All right. So that's, that to me is a possibility that they could have come in contact with this in the store at some point. What thoughts might you have? I was still sticking with the, he goes around looking at inventory, right? But I hadn't considered he also just shops for stuff and, and it's not just about all about his business. And that's, that could be a, a legitimate way of touching something. You know, even in the Panorama program, they, they talk about his parents and his wife trying, struggling to keep this store open while he's in jail. And they mentioned about like how he would make decisions about what to buy, like what to bring into the store that's going right. to potentially sell to his customers. Right. And there's lots of decisions in that. It wasn't just a, a regular cadence of you just get groceries in and it's always the same thing. It right. was a more more work and decision process than that. And which to me then means that he's having to go look and consider the different things and seeing what's going to, to sell to his customers. Perhaps a little more hands-on pun intended and quite literally. Exactly. And no, but interesting to ask him tomorrow details about what was that process like when he was running that store and, yes. and then also what kind of shopping did he do in the greater Manchester area? Yes, indeed. So another thing that would be interesting to explore, and I think this is a dead end because let's just say for a moment that virtual statements and the way that he happens to lift and Terry Kent's, we don't know everything about the jewelry box and how it was lifted. There could be some weird scenario where maybe you get scalloping in this instance from this jewelry box because of some weird factors. So what if the lift did come from the jewelry box? Let's say virtual is correct and the lift comes from that. So it doesn't change anything here other than the scalloping it's from the surface came from. We're still back to the scenario. How did it get there? He would have had to have touched it at some point. There isn't a lot in the record about exploring could he could McNamara have touched the jewelry box at some point had he been into a jeweler's. Is this an inventory item that could have passed through? Everyone's yeah. focus on the vases, but there isn't yeah. a whole lot of talk about could he have actually come in contact with the jewelry box. Which was a much more recent purchase for that family. Exactly. Yes. I want to explore that with him too. Okay. Yeah, I definitely want to get confirmation about that lift too, whether any of the other Layton Song here really did come from Mrs. Shears. Because there's one that might be enough to be like where a Layton print examiner can look at it and go, yeah, this it's from Mrs. Shears, but it's not enough to call it an ID. It's kind of the one like almost dead center. But the other... You're talking on lift in, number two or one? A two. But the little fragment that's just below mm -hmm. the, the main print or the kind of shadow core that's to the right yeah. of the main print those aren't good enough to do anything with again this version of the late of the a photograph or a scan of the lift card yeah 
Now, uh, I, if know. I'm hearing you correctly, it would be helpful for us in this to actually get a set of these elimination prints from Shears and check the IDs on this. Because I'm looking at the same image you're looking at going, boy, though, maybe there's an association there. but And maybe if you have a limited number of people who could have possibly come in contact. But what if, right? So what if her prints actually aren't on the lift? That's where you're going with this. What if an error exactly. has been made in that? I don't and then, know. And then this... The, then this lift doesn't even have to be from the house. It could exactly. have been from anything else that guy had worked on basically within a week, just with the level of documentation and the frequency of turning things in back at the station. Yeah. So that's another thing we can ask Alan about is if anyone has access to those images, were they maintained or were they destroyed after all of this? It, I agree. It would be nice to uh, to take a look at those and see if she could be excluded or not as a potential source of not excluded there's no way i'm excluding anything on any latents on this card except for the one good one but boy they're not great yeah yeah and again we're going to post these and try to let you know listeners take a look for themselves they're pretty fragmented and yeah they have pretty marginal rich detail but they're not out of the realm of the kinds of things i've seen in some uk cases where there was this process back in the 90s and early 2000s because it came up in the Shirley McKee case of effectively cleaning up the prints, going through and IDing all the other little fragments in a case, which is how Shirley McKee gets associated with the evidence in that case, by going through, comparing them to the Sockos that were at the scene and going through and comparing them to the homeowners and everyone else and trying to make IDs on all these other little fragments. That's why I'm so surprised in this case that wasn't done. Now, maybe my understanding of UK practices, maybe that only applied to homicides. Sure. But we even asked Charlton about this because it was one of the things that came up in the early episodes when we interviewed David Charlton about UK practices. Because, as I had learned way back then, they had this process of... Fingerprint experts going through and trying to ID everything beyond the main prints in the case because of performance reviews. Fingerprint examiners were tracked on their performance, how many IDs they made, and the more IDs they made, the better. And so that was tied to their performance and even getting raises. So if you had opportunities to make lots of identifications, easy ones to the victims and the homeowners, this was important part of your job to get as many IDs under your belt and tally them all up. But maybe that wasn't the practice in GMP, Greater Manchester Police. Maybe that was something that's happened more in the Metropolitan Labs and that right. Dave talked about. But it also was happening in Scotland as well. So I'm a little confused about UK practices and why they would not have compared them to eliminations that were taken the day after the crime of the husband and the wife. Why would they not have compared the unknown? So I find that all very surprising. I imagine anyone who really dives into this case, maybe even accesses the same documents that we did. There are things that we have left out of this, like the Cowens case. It's just so big. We can't cover all the little minutia and details and reports and all that. We're not trying to. So we have, for the sake of trying to tell a succinct story, we have left out certain things too. So I imagine people That's could true. comment on our episodes and go, you didn't even talk about that? Yep. No, we didn't. We know. It was a deliberate editorial choice. Exactly. We wanted to get the main points across in the time that, that we have available. And for a case like this that dragged on for a decade plus, there's definitely a lot more detail in here than we were able to cover. Indeed. All right. So, you know, like I said earlier, there's these old BBC websites from 20 plus years ago. 
And there's a whole comment section with dozens and dozens of comments from the public at large and then also people involved in this case. And, oh, really? Uh, and fingerprint officers. So oh, um, I thought this was a very interesting little snapshot of the time capturing how people were feeling about this case. Now, if I interpreted the website correctly, these are comments made after the first episode of the Panorama Show airs in 2001. The theories of the crime definitely evolved over time, or I guess theories of the crime, theories of how Alan Prince could have been on there without him committing the crime evolved over time. So you can see at least a little bit some initial thoughts on this. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. Also, just the mindset of fingerprint examiners in the UK. Anyway, let's jump into it. So first, Pat Wertheim actually put in a whole couple paragraphs about some details in the case, filling in a couple gaps that he thought the, the Panorama program had missed, but also spending quite a bit of time talking about his interpretation of the term opinion and how he views opinion of what movie you like or what political party you belong to as different from opinion evidence in, in a case like this. Yeah. The next person here that made a comment was Ian McKee. He oh, did he have something to say about this? Things were still kind of, you know, going on with the, with his daughter. So uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't um, say. He, but he wanted just to make sure to emphasize how there was literally no other evidence that the essentially the crown brought in their experts, the defense brought in their experts. Then the jury was just asked to pick which set of experts do you believe that without any other evidence, they didn't find any of the stolen stuff. They didn't have them, any eyewitnesses or video cameras or Nothing else that, that linked Alan McNamara to the crime. So he wanted to emphasize that point. Dave Charlton, the at the time editor of the Fingerprint World, the latent print examiner there over in the UK. He, I'll get to it here in a second, but there were a lot of comments from fingerprint examiners saying how there was a lot of good in the fingerprint profession. So he echoed that opinion, but also suggested that it was time to have more open and transparent discussions with the public so that fingerprint examiners can demonstrate what they do, what they offer the criminal justice system. And then the field should engage in debate to encourage and foster learning and eradicate complacency. And then our friend Ed German also threw his hat into the rink. And he found this show very helpful in educating the public. He was very dismayed about this case, the McKee case, Asbury, other just famous British cases involving fingerprints. And uh, he had an interesting comment. I don't think we got too much into it, but there was, there was a lot of discussion about how, at least in testimony, how the senior crime officer in this case had a, like a special technique that, that when he did the lift, he could have deliberately avoid taking up any wood grain into the lift. So it was, wouldn't be there. Uh, so Ed's point was that should be an easy technique to then demonstrate to the court showing this is how I do it. That eliminates any wood grain from appearing. Any, yeah. any surprises there about any of the comments or the people that commented nope. so far? I can hear every one of those voices <laughs> and every one of those sounds exactly like that person. It's amazing. All right. So here's some fingerprint officers, some named, some not named that threw in their comments. One officer said that the Panorama episode, which didn't just cover Alan McNamara, but also goes into some detail about a couple other cases, including the Shirley McKee case. Mm -hmm. He said they left out uh, lots of facts and details about the Shirley McKee case. 
And that if people, the public starts taking too much notice of these types of programs, then the criminals will start getting away with crimes and then commit more crimes. And next time they'll commit a crime against you. So think about Good that. Good fear mongering. Yep. Love it. Andrew from New Scotland Yard said there's millions of safe IDs that the program didn't talk about at all. Errors come from a human, it's human error that are, that's the problem. Not the fingerprints aren't the problem. It's human error. It's the problem. Well, it doesn't quite fit because we're not talking about necessarily an error unless we're talking about the switch up of the surfaces. We're not, there's no error in the ID. Unless he's referring to, again, the McKee error and the other erroneous IDs that episode talked about. There's no way to tell at this point, you know, in interpreting, but the impression I got was that, you know, that we're throwing fingerprints under the bus and fingerprints didn't do anything wrong. It's these right. humans that made the, pro- that had the issue with it. Yeah. I'm like, very, well, very common from that, from those years. Yeah. Very common. And in his opinion, the 16 point standard was changed because of a decision by the association of chief police officers without input from the fingerprint officers actually doing the job. And that is not true, but okay. So, there's some, and there's a couple more comments about you know, people, another person from Essex worrying that this move away from the 16 point standard is going to cause more problems. That person still did still also stated that the McKee print did not match and was, was fully on board with that side of things, but showing just a kind of a snapshot of what people were thinking at the time about that 16 point standard and the relatively recent move away from it. Right. Yes. Helen thought that the show was disturbing, sending fear among viewers, and she wanted to emphasize that there are strict procedures with three checks in place for fingerprint IDs, and that these experts and senior crime officers do valuable work. Yeah, in many cases, that's the case, yes. And then Alan Green, who was the Mm. assistant chief constable in Manchester. Yeah, I know his name. (laughs) <laughs> was very critical of Pat Wertheim for responding online in an unrestrained manner. Yes. While he and the police are restrained and found it unethical that evidently Pat discussed this case in front of other fingerprint experts outside of the UK before the actual court case and using photographs provided to him by the Greater Manchester Police. Any any kind of thoughts on that? It seems like you're, these are not surprising. These are opinions that were widely held at the time. Oh, I have a little story for you and Alan tomorrow that I've been holding on to that okay. will emphasize some of the spirit of the, especially that last one you just talked about. So holding on for that one. I mean, you've talked relatively recently in the UK. Is there still a heartburn about the moving away from the 16-point standard or is just no. so much time gone by that people don't even care anymore? Yeah, it's not, it's really not. I noticed a really big difference in the UK from when I was there in the early 2000s to when I was just teaching right before the pandemic. It is interesting how much turnover they had because so many either retired or went on other careers. When effectively the Forensic Science Service took over many of the fingerprinting services, and then when they went under, agencies were kind of left to scramble and figure out what to do and either hire people, train people. There are no longer the national training centers that exist there. It's a very different environment. And on top of all of that, they have a forensic regulator who's making 
huge changes, trying to move them into like probabilistic language and move them towards other things. So I think a point, 16 point standard is the least of their concerns right now. Sure. And I can't remember even some of the older examiners in the courses that I taught there speaking up and going, I miss the good old days when we had a 16 point standard. That's not been my experience. And based on the research of Ian Evett back in the 80s and 90s, finding that most officers there really didn't support the 16-point standard in the sense that it was nice to have a standard, but it wasn't like you you necessarily could demonstrate 16 clear points or 16 valid points. It was As Ian Abbott pointed out years ago, it was really an illusion and rather unnecessary. It really, in truth, didn't exist as a hard standard. So I noticed that a lot of them are called fingerprint officers. Yes. Is, you know, what I took away from that is that these are like sworn positions or this, they had been at one point in time, or that's where those examiners came from is from the sworn side. Is that accurate? Yeah. Many of them have that as SOCOs, they go through that. It's why it's a police college. So yeah, many of them have the police background. Is that, does that change also today? Is it more of a science background for? No, it's more civilian today. Is my, is, well, at least, again, my experience, I can't say it's the case all across sure. the UK, but that's, that was at least the groups I was teaching. They were mostly civilian. All right. So here's a couple more comments. There are a couple about how there seem to be some suggestions from just the public at large that why aren't computers doing this work? So some people try to help explain that, that the computer can't make that ID. There, there needs to be an examiner involved in the process. And, but one suggests, well, maybe, maybe the latent prints going to court should only be the ones that were, are good enough for a computer to make by itself. Can't quite tell if he was a fingerprint expert or just has, as he said, works with computer fingerprinting, but that's, again, that's one of the, the comments mm -hmm. there. Let's see. A retired senior crime officer said that there's lots of reason and described a couple of reasons why the wood grain wouldn't be there, but then also asked if it was a possibility that the lift from this scene could have been mixed up with the lift from another scene, which right. again, we talked about here a little bit ago. I found this expert of 14 years, again, at the time in 2001, said that he has never been cross-examined on the stand. And he saw the, the McKee case, the SCRO case, as just a, an entire case of incompetence on the fingerprint examiners that worked for SCRO. And he, he was asking why was the SACO officer lifting the print and not the fingerprint expert. But he didn't try to reassure the public that in general, the fingerprint system can be trusted and that anyone found incompetent should be fired. There were a couple of comments along those lines of, if we find incompetence in our ranks, they need to get out of here. I just, that guy's comments were really interesting in, in being very much, very critical about the, the SCRO and the McKee case, but then trying to reassure the public that everything's okay here. So there was a, one that I thought was very interesting, assigned by what was called a group of fingerprint experts. They said that they were disturbed and saddened by seeing this episode, concerned about the problems at the SCRO, and also dismayed about the comments from the chief constable, our friend Alan Green, that we mentioned a little bit ago. It's, I'm just seeing this kind of variety of comments from the experts at the time even, and their reaction to this program. With this gamut of the show was terrible and is just going to lead to more crime that are, it's going to, they're, they're, and they're all going to come after you next to just trying to reassure the public to also having the same kinds of concerns that we've expressed about the results in this case. 
Yeah, I would agree. I think I was shocked in 2000, and I'm shocked in 2022 that jurors still in this case, after hearing the background and all the other stuff, couldn't have found a way in their mind that there must be some other explanation how this got there, that the fingerprint alone is the conviction. Again, except for it must have been the believability of Mrs. Shear is that, no, I clean this regularly. This had to have been deposited in the last one. I mean, it's the only thing, and I guess if I'm a layperson, I don't know any better, and I'm not aware of possible exceptions or other possible other things, and that's what I'm hearing. All right, fingerprint found in the house. Had to be in the last week. There you go. Had to have been him. It's just, it still yeah. doesn't seem enough to me to pull the trigger and go, yeah, he should go to jail on that. Yeah, I agree with you. That's... I don't know. I guess the only thing I could that kind of then makes sense is that they didn't hear all of this. They only heard the planting evidence theory. Right. Uh, and that landed with a thud is basically how it's been described. That just did not go over well. Let's accuse them of basically corruption as opposed to basically a genuine error or a weird set of circumstances. Right. Uh, I think you're absolutely putting your finger on the biggest issue. I'm going to bring up a conversation and share this with listeners and you. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. I can tell you that when I first started, and I worked so many burglary cases and lift cases in this, I had a very different view, I think, probably a little more jaded and cynical. You found that print inside the house that didn't belong, had to be the guy. Hook him up. You got him. Catch him bad guys all day long. That's what we do. And I will tell you over the years, studying these cases, following these cases, not just in fingerprints, but in DNA, when, you know, there are these amazing cases out of Australia that was the ja Jaffe case, Dama case, where there is this swab that gets mixed up at the hospital and it looks like there's this one thing tying the person to a sexual assault, but it was a mix up at the hospital and that's how it, it, this swab from one kit gets in another and basically makes it look like this guy raped this girl when he had like alibi and friends with him all night long and no way he could have been the perpetrator, yet one bit of evidence is what convicted him. Years ago, I was having a conversation with Christoph Shampo, the great Christoph Shampo, and he said to me, we're talking about some of these very kinds of things, and said, Glenn, I just don't know how comfortable I am these days with convictions on a single piece of forensic evidence. One thing tying a person to a scene, and that's it. That's the only thing. I wonder if, in cases, there shouldn't be a higher standard for conviction, that it needs to be corroborated with other things. I don't know what those other things are, but... I just, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this one bit of evidence is all you need to convict someone. One physical bit of evidence and bam, that's it. No matter what. And it overrides all alibis and all other things. Given human error, the possibility of mix up in, in this. And I remember him saying this and I had this immediate reaction of, I don't know, Christoph, I've had a few cases where it was the only thing in the case and I think we had the right guy. And I remember for years I've struggled with this over and over and over and over. It, it replay many things Christoph has said to me years ago that I didn't quite get on board with at that <laughs> time have over the years settled. And now I'm looking back going kind of where he is right now in my career. Should one single forensic evidence be the only thing necessary to say this person did this crime? I'm beginning to get, as Christoph used the word, uncomfortable with it. And this McNamara case is yet another example of one single print on a surface, nothing right. else. Any indicators, history, behavior, all the things we normally look for to tell a narrative, to tell a story, 
look, this guy clearly does burglary. He's looking at all this other stuff, looking at all these other things going on. None of that's there. Yeah, I'm beginning to understand Christoph's uncomfortability with, with this kind of single evidence. Let me ask you this as a little point of clarity here. When you're talking about a single piece of forensic evidence, are you talking of a single type or a single latent? Just DNA? No, just it, it, right, it could, DNA. Right, no, it could be a hair. It could be DNA. It could be a footprint. It could, what I mean, whatever kind of just one thing in a case, especially if there are other things that are contradicting it, but the one, there's sure. one thing that ties it, like the like Mayfield or this case or McKee, right? All Everyone said she didn't go into the scene, but yet they have to find a way to put her into the scene because they found her print there. It's these cases where there's one thing and only one thing tying them to it. But but they're also each one latent, right? Uh, if there were like five latents, is that? Oh no, still... no, you're right. No, I'm I'm. I guess I was referring to one latent. That's what we were talking about at that time. But I'm now seeing your distinction. Yeah, I'm being your five point. latents, but the only evidence is latents. It's just one type of evidence, but there's still five IDs. I mean, had it and been like five IDs on this object, I don't know that it would have changed tremendously, especially if they were like in sequence or something and you still picked exactly. it up in the store. So totally take your point. It depends um, on the circumstances a little bit, but yeah. mo more so just that one singular latent or one singular swab or what just yes. a one thing that is the only link especially if there's other stuff that that contradicts it no yeah. I, I what my where my mind immediately went from there is is i'm wondering how close we are to that anyway i hear about you know certain prosecutor's offices not wanting to file charges if the right. if there's just and not even one latent but just if latents are the only thing if there's nothing yeah. else then not bothering no, I, Cedric and I hosted a conference once where we interviewed a bunch of prosecutors, and all the ones there said the same thing. They're very uncomfortable w presenting a case with a single link, a forensic ink link, or whatever it might be, or a single eyewitness ID, or whatever that might be, because for them to win a case, there must be a narrative, a story that fits, right. that makes sense, that jurors look at and they go, yeah, common sense, I can get behind that. That's what's missing from this case is the narrative aspect. I'm missing that. Why? It, it all rests on we found his print at a scene. It's got it. He had to be burglarizing, even though no narrative suggests that at all. Well, the next immediate thought was, and we got to step things up and, and invest more in the collection of evidence, even in this case, right? Yeah, that, that was something we notes, didn't talk about. Was, was all the other evidence that was left behind at this scene and. But how many of those old burglar cases you described working back in the early 2000s, how many of them were, so they sent you one card, right? Uh, it's a fairly yep. common thing, right? right. Where, many, 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 many. Where that's all they're sending. And, and then that doesn't even count the, heck, the big city next door where I live right now. They don't even send people out to the seats <laughs> right. right? Uh, for burglaries anyway. It's. There's definitely, if I think I would agree that more evidence would, would I think definitely help and maybe should be a, some sort of standard there, but that's also going to take an investment to collect more evidence so you can have more than one. Sure. And, 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 and I'm sure listeners are, could probably immediately recall a case or two, like a heinous, terrible crime, rape and or murder, where yeah. there is just one evidence one fingerprint, one swab or something that ties the whole case together, breaks everything, 
And had it not been for that, in their mind, you know, they got the right guy. But that is the only thing in the case. that I'm sure listeners could think of cases and go, yeah, if you set that as a standard, think of all the these terrible people that would have gotten away with it. True. I would think that, that most of those kind of, you know, single cases that jump to mind, if you really dig into them, sure yes. was that single piece of evidence that, the, yes, where, there's that a linked narrative. the person. Right. But then there's a narrative, there's more that hooks you into finding the stolen stuff or, or an eyewitness or a lack of an alibi or something else that starts to, where pieces start to fit together. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on it. Oh, and, and we, I guess we'd be remiss to say there are some jurisdictions in the United States that have said finding a fingerprint at a crime scene, at a burglary scene in, in someone's house is not enough to say that they did a burglary. There are some jurisdictions that have ruled that and said that's a single fingerprint from a scene does not mean that they did this crime. Right. So I mean, there are some courts that have taken that position. All right, well, Glenn, uh, we're running along again, and we're just going to talk about it some more uh, next time in the morning. Yeah, no kidding. But I think we're all set here on this one and hope everyone listening learned a lot about this case. And assuming we can post all this stuff online, it takes uh, some time to, to go through, look at some of these images. I don't think we're going to do a video breaking down the comparison here because we don't have the exemplars, but also right. the idea in this case isn't in dispute and it's fairly boring and easy and not interesting, but I still think it's interesting for listeners to pull up some of those images, look at what we're looking at. And if you have any observations of, about these lifts and some of the shapes that uh, tape folds that you see in here, WTF. these WTFs, <laughs> then, oh man, that'd be so great if that caught on as a standard abbreviation. Yeah, yeah I, we, I should explain. I mentioned this <laughs> in a previous episode. When we were first, the latent print unit had to, under ISO accreditation, come up a list of all of our abbreviations from the latent print <laughs> unit used. We decided it'd be funny if we got WTF through the quality manager. And so we ended up putting WTF as an actual abbreviation. And we thought, what would that be? And I remember blurting out wrinkle tape fold. And <laughs> everyone laughed and went, oh, yeah, we're totally doing it. And sure enough, it sailed right through the QM. And it's go. still in the latent section today as as an abbreviation. And my understanding is I think Rebecca got it through her section, too. There you go. Well, I mean, because once it's in, you have to keep it, right? Because now right. people are relying on this, this abbreviation key to decipher what, what your notes right. mean. Aptly named WTFs. It, it does. Because it, that's the that's also the immediate thought in your head when you see it. You're like, come on. Like, okay, on occasion, you look at what it came off of, and you're like, oh, okay, that's fair. It's off a light bulb. That's just what it's going to look like. Right. But when it's off of a like a window of a car, you're like, come on, guys. It, this is a WTF. Why couldn't you just... <laughs> lift the tape i can't remember where where was i even oh so yeah if you have any theories or observations after looking at some of these images that you want to share with us please send us some emails glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com love to hear from you and and hear what you have to think about mm -hmm. about oh, maybe you can make something out of the claw slash five in in the lift that so that we couldn't really parse out or cipher yeah, crowdsource that. Absolutely. And then go to our website, doubleloppodcast.com. Got some merchandise there, links to all, a bunch of past episodes and stuff. Patreon.com slash doubleloppodcast. You can send a couple bucks our way. There's not a whole lot there, but there's some extra stuff that's just for patrons. And we're hoping to add more and more as time goes along. And the opinions expressed on this show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. 
And with that, I think we're all done. So we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Thank you.